Okay, uh, so one of the most uh, basic and yet deep and important sort of philo philosophical questions that humanity has ever asked, uh, you've heard it all before, what is the meaning of life? It's, it's been asked so many times, it's kind of become a, a, a cliche, an, an overused cliche, but, but the question actually is everything. What is the meaning of life? What am I doing here? What's my purpose? What am I meant to do with my life? And most importantly, how am I meant to live? If you've only got one life, then how we're meant to live is vitally important. And so if you ask around, ask uh, or examine world religions, you'll get a wide variety of answers. Or in my case this week, I decided to ask the ever-reliable source of Google just to see what it has to say about it. Uh, so there are a few obvious answers. Uh, the movie Monty Python's The Meaning of Life you know, came up right up there at the top of the list, as well as the, the really obvious answer that... Uh, the answer to the meaning of, of life, the universe, and everything is 42. That's from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, but there's a few more serious opinions out there that did eventually come up as you scrolled further down down through Google. And I think they're, they're probably just as, as silly as Monty Python, but perhaps a bit less uh, funny. So there's the, the famous uh, atheist Richard Dawkins, who believes that we are nothing more than a cosmic accident. A random collection of chemicals forming a clump of cells into the shape of a human being, and that's all we are. And then what he believes about who we are completely shapes his understanding for the purpose of life. So I've got a, a quote here from, from uh, Richard Dawkins. Uh, he says, in a, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. So a lovely bleak uh, view of the universe there. At least he's consistent. Although we'll ignore the no evil, no good because he spends a lot of time talking about the evil of religion, but we'll put that to the side. Uh, so, the, But the, the greatest tragedy of this is, is not that, it's the bleakness of his worldview. That there is at bottom no purpose, there's nothing that we're meant to do with our lives. That we're nothing more than molecules and, and DNA. But, but not all secular worldviews share this bleak outlook. Uh, so I looked up a secular psychologist, a guy called Neil Burton. He sees humanity as the peak of nature, the centre of the universe. And so he says, human life may not have been created with any predetermined purpose, but this need not mean that it cannot have a purpose, nor that this purpose cannot be just as good, if not better than any predetermined one. And so the meaning of life, of our life, is that which we choose to give it. That doesn't, doesn't that just sound so sweet? That the purpose that we give to life is our own. We get to choose our own purpose. It's nonsense, but it's, it sounds good. You can put it on a, on a poster and it looks good. But basically he's saying that, that human life is the highest authority to give meaning and therefore each individual can make it up for themselves. But the problem is he's saying that life is made up of meaningless atoms and those meaningless atoms form a brain that then tells us that we have meaning and purpose. So how can we trust those meaningless atoms banging around in our, in our brain? But the, the major point that I'm making, and we'll come back to it later on, is, is that what we believe about who we are completely changes the answer to the meaning of life and our purpose here and what we're meant to do with our life, how we're meant to live. 
So we'll come back to that a little bit later, but for now let's let's dive into our passage. So so turn in your Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter one verse thirteen. Okay, now I don't know about the different Bible translations, but what's the very first word you've got? Therefore, there we go. So that, that's as far as we'll go today, and then next week we'll be... No, not really. But it is really important to stop. It, it's, a, it's an overused cliche of, of biblical interpretation, but uh, lecturers like using it. When, when you see the therefore in the passage, the first question you're meant to ask is, what's the therefore, therefore? You've all heard it before, sure. But it means we need to stop and pause and think about what we've just read in the previous passage. And in the New Testament, uh, most of the time it's there for the exact same reason. When we see the word therefore, we're, we're seeing a transition between theology and application. So we, we actually see this, uh, probably two of the, the really major ones. It, it's a different word in the Greek, but it's still therefore. Paul uses it uh, in, in Romans and in Ephesians. So in the book of Romans, you have 11 whole chapters of deep, rich theology uh, of the sinfulness of humanity and what God has done to, to intervene in the world through Christ, Christ to save us by his grace, uh, to, to fill us with the spirit, to give us a new life in Christ. And then all of a sudden, at the start of chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then the rest of the book is all about how to offer your body as a living sacrifice, how to live for God. And the same thing is true with Ephesians. You've got the first three chapters, it's nothing but theology. And the last three chapters, it's all about application. And right in between, he says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the rest of the letter is how you go about doing that. So in First Peter, we, we have the exact same thing. But we're pretty early on in our, our series. So we, we've basically just had one opening passage... And already Peter goes, therefore, here's how you live that out. And the rest of the book is actually application. So it's um, the same principle, but very different in, it, in its weighting. Uh, and so that's why this is going to be a, a really practical book. It, it is filled with rich theology. There's a, there's a lot of theology in there. Um, but, but that's why, we're, I guess, why John and I are really excited about going through this book, is that it's going to be really, really practical. But I'll, do, I'll give a quick uh, recap of, of last week. Uh, John preached on, on uh, verses 3 uh, through to 12, and it was really all about the hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus. So not only have we been born again, but we have the hope of a future inheritance, eternal life with God. And, and John quoted from one of my favorite passages uh, of Revelation 21, that God will dwell with his people, that we get to dwell with God. And we can be sure of this because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then we know that we too will be raised to be like Christ and will be with him in the new heaven and the new earth. And we have this hope in the midst of sufferings. And that's going to be a running theme throughout this series is having hope in the midst of persecution and suffering. And we, and we have hope not just because of, of the future, but we know that it will test and prove the genuineness of our faith, like gold being purified by fire. So that's great. That was awesome, a really encouraging sermon. But now what? Now what do you do about that? You've been saved. You have an amazing hope for the future. And now what are you meant to do about that? Right right now, right here and now, what are you meant to do with your life? Or do we just sit around waiting for this future hope? Well, Peter is actually in this passage. He's going to show us 
how to respond to God's grace toward us. We're going to learn the entire purpose for our lives as Christians. So that's a pretty big call, that by the end of this sermon, you're going to know the entire purpose and meaning for your existence as Christians. But I can be confident to say that because there are three main commands that we're going to go through. Peter sets it out because he likes having three-point sermons or making it easier for preachers to have their three-point sermons. But there's going to be three commands that he gives uh, that actually uh, undergird and provide a foundation for all of the Christian life. Because there are passages in the New Testament that are very specific, really uh, specific commands about certain instances, like we're told to pray for our country's leaders. Uh, Husbands are told to love their wives. Christians are commanded not to gossip. So there's all sorts of those specific commands, but the three in today's passage uh, are are all-encompassing. Or perhaps you could describe it as the foundation for all other commands given to Christians throughout the New Testament. And so that's why I want to dive into the first one, is is here in verse 13, we're told to hope in God. So verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the start of the verse is telling us how, how to go about doing that. By preparing your minds... So, so the Greek, and, and some of you might recognize it if you're familiar with the, the old uh, King James language, it literally says to gird up the loins of your mind, uh, an expression we probably don't use very much anymore, to, to gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, yeah, like, we'll, we'll get it into use soon enough. So, uh, so it, it really refers to uh, tucking in a robe into your belt. Um, it, it meant to, to get dressed, to get ready to go. So it's just an idiom that really means kind of the equivalent would be to hitch up your pants, to roll up your sleeves, to get ready for action. And so how do we do that? It then says, uh, by being sober-minded is the next part of that verse. And so part of that is obviously not getting drunk with with alcohol, but I I think he he means uh, in, in a more specific way of what that actually entails, what that does to your mind. So he's saying to think clearly, to to stay focused to be in control of your thoughts. That's what it really means to be sober-minded. So don't dull your senses so that your view of reality is skewed. So instead, you let your thoughts be shaped by the promises of Scripture rather than thrown back and forth by our emotions or wavering on the basis of the opinions of others. So by thinking clearly, we set our hope in God. But, but what does that actually mean, to hope in God? What does the word hope mean? And I think, unfortunately, in our culture, many people think of hope as, as similar to the way they speak of faith, which I, I think is more equivalent to what should be called blind faith. They would see hope as something that's not based on knowledge. It's just something that we really want to happen. See, we Christians, we just can't cope with the evil and suffering in the world And so we just really, deep down, we hope that there's a better life out there. And that's the only reason why we would believe in heaven or believe in eternal life. We just just really hope it's true. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what biblical hope is. And it's not what it means to have faith in Christ. Something apart from evidence. Something in spite of evidence or anything like that. And so many uh, theologians believe that Peter uses the term hope uh, very similar to the way that Paul uses faith. 
It's not blind. It's not something we believe despite a lack of evidence. But to the contrary, we, we trust in God because he's proven himself to be trustworthy. We, we, we place our hope in him because there's nowhere safer to place our hope than in God. So look, look back earlier in this chapter. Uh, last week's passage was from verse 3. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have two reasons there to hope. The first is that God has intervened in our life already, causing us to be born again. So if, if God has already intervened in your life, already caused you to be born again, then it's perfectly valid, perfectly reasonable to hope that he can continue intervening in your life to transform you and that he can intervene at the end and, and create a new heaven and new earth. It's not really that unbelievable to believe that the creator of the first earth can then intervene and create a new heaven and earth. But we know that he can do this because he's intervened in our life already and caused us to be born again. But the skeptic might say that that's rather subjective uh, and based on our own personal experience that, that might be wrong. But Peter says that our living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So I spoke about that on, on Easter Sunday. People often say you, you can't possibly know what happens to you after you die. But we can if the creator of the universe tells us, if he reveals that truth to us. And if, if he gives assurance of that by raising Jesus from the dead. So we know that we have this living hope because Jesus is alive and he's alive today. We know that he's defeated death. We know that he's removed eternal punishment from us. We know that he's given us eternal life even today because we worship a living saviour who raised, was raised from the dead and is still alive working today. So let's get back to our passage today. We're, we're to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the completion of our salvation. We, we hope in a, in a future salvation, a new creation in which we get to dwell with God. No more struggling with sin. No more living in fallen bodies, living in a broken creation filled with death. Everything that went wrong at the fall will be restored. And so when we, uh, so we set our hope in God and the future salvation that he'll bring us. So that sounds pretty similar to last week so far, right? That, that we, we have a living hope through Jesus' resurrection. He's made us born again and he'll complete that salvation at the end. And it is similar to last week. It's very similar to what he's saying in verse 3. But he's not simply repeating his point from verse 3. He's telling us to apply it. See, it's one thing to know theologically that you have eternal life. It's another thing to live as if it's actually true. And we do that by setting our hope on God's future grace. So how many of you have heard the expression, uh, you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good? One of those wonderful Christian cliches that turn out to not actually be very biblical. But so Col Colossians 3.2 actually tells us the opposite. Colossians 3.2 says, to set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. We're commanded to be heavenly minded and not be distracted by earthly things. I know what people mean by the expression, you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. The implication is that people are so focused on spiritual matters that they never actually get anything done. They don't achieve anything for God's kingdom 
because they're sitting around twiddling their thumbs waiting to go to heaven. But, but the hope that we have is just the opposite. Knowing that we have a future hope should completely change the way that we live here and now. It should change our attitude towards everything. Just, just as having no hope or having misplaced hope affects how we live. But if, if anything, though, I, I would say that many of us are actually too earthly-minded to be any heavenly good, not the other way around. We get distracted, we get fixated, we get obsessed with things that won't last, even though Jesus has actually commanded us to store up treasure in heaven, not on earth where moth and rust decay. And so I had an interesting uh, discussion with, with my um, boss in a lab working a few years ago. We were discussing... Uh, the, the Christian worldview and the, and the religious right in America uh, and environmentalism and all these things. And, and one, one interesting thing he said was that, that Christians in the right in America, they, they don't care about the environment because, and, and, and this is true, there are people that use this reasoning. They would say, well, God's going to create a new heaven and new earth. Therefore, we don't have to worry about how we treat this one because it'll all, it'll all go away anyway and we've got the new heaven and earth to come. But I would say the fact that there is eternity and the fact that there is a God who holds us accountable to how we live, then we have every reason to look after the environment today because we know that we'll have to uh, uh, give an account to God. Whereas if we believe that this is all that there is, there is this earth and we'll just die and that's it, then there's no reason to look after it or not. There's no reason to do anything. So we should be focused on the reality that there is eternal life, there is eternal death, we should be focused on things that will last and have consequences into eternity. But that means that affects what we do today. So uh, Leonard Ravenhill is a good revivalist preacher. He says that as soon as we reach eternity, we'll all wish that we had prayed more, that we had wept for the lost more, that we had reached out to them with the gospel, that we had read more of God's word, that we had strived to become more like Christ. So wonder, like, how many of us will get to heaven and then say, oh, I, I wish I could have just spent five more minutes scrolling through Facebook. Please send me back so I can just go back there and do, you know, give me another do-over so I can do it again. But when you focus on the future hope, it radically transforms here and now. So the gospel isn't just a ticket to heaven that you get to cash in at the pearly gates when we die. We do have eternal life and we are waiting for a future salvation. But we already have it now. We already have salvation. It completely changes how we should live today. I think it should also change how we respond to an increasingly hostile culture, the future hope that we have. And that'll be a continual theme throughout uh, Peter's first letter. And that's why I love that we've chosen this book because the church uh, that he was writing to, or the churches that he was writing to, uh, we're in a, a similar situation to where I believe our culture is heading. And I think we need to be reminded of the same message of the future hope that, that we have. Because I know many Christians over the election period were concerned about matters of, of religious freedom. And, and that's okay. It, it, it's good and it's right to fight to protect religious freedom. But, but we have to be really, really careful not to place our hope and our trust in those things having our hope and our trust in having the right political leaders or being able to lead a comfortable life. Because if, if your hope is in that, if, if your hope is in politicians 
or a comfortable life or society improving, be prepared for disappointment. It, it's not a, a wise place to have your hope. But if things in this country do get worse, that's okay. Because our hope isn't in this world. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is something in something sure. It's in something guaranteed. See, if Christ has already saved us, he's already justified us, made us right with God, he's forgiven our sins, and he's already in the process of saving us, it's called sanctifying us, he's transforming us to make us more like Christ, then we can be equally confident that he will save us, that he'll complete that transformation. And in the end, that's all that really matters. And Jesus taught the very same thing to his disciples. So in uh, Luke 10, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, I have given you all authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all uh, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he's saying, don't rejoice because of your circumstances or because things are going well, but rejoice in something that is eternal and unchanging, your salvation. So here's a difficult question. Does your mood or your joy change according to your circumstances? There's a yes from everyone, right? <laughs> Good. I'm not the only one. Does your hope waver? So we're not actually meant to be tossed to and fro according to our circumstances when we have a firm anchor holding us in place with a constant and a sure hope. So that can never, ever change. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can take our salvation away. So on the day when persecution comes, when you lose a friend or a family member, uh, when, when friends or family won't speak to you because you believe in Jesus or because you uphold biblical morality, even when you find out that you have cancer, you still have the same hope on the good days or the bad days. And that isn't to say that we don't weep in the midst of suffering. We are called to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who weep. We're not to be insensitive or ignorant of our surroundings, but we don't lose hope because our hope is not clinging to a comfortable life. Our hope isn't clinging to any of those things, of having the right uh, friends and family and all the relationships always going well. We hope in the life that is to come. Well, let's speed it up a bit and get to the command number two. The second is to be holy. In fact, it says, be holy in all your conduct. That's pretty big, right? Be holy in all your conduct. And he even goes a step further. Be holy just like God is. That's a, a, a huge command. But I think it, it also... Um, has its big misconceptions as well. So firstly, I'll cover what holiness is not. It, it's not the same as, as righteousness. That, that can be a part of it. But, but people often think of holiness when you hear expressions like holier than thou. That they kind of refer to rule keeping, to purity or, or moral goodness. And if that were the case, then there would be specific instances in which Christians are to behave in a holy manner. 
But, but holiness is actually much more all-encompassing than that. Uh, the, the word that he uses there, holy, means to be set apart. So there is a moral component to that, but, but it's really about being separate. It's about being distinct from the surrounding culture. It's about being different. That sounds like a pretty good title for a sermon series through First Peter, I would think. Right. So that doesn't just affect your individual moral decisions. This is an entire life, an entire existence that's one of being separate and set apart. And he actually gives us another clue as to what holiness uh, looks like in the text. So uh, look down in verse 14. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. So being, being holy is the opposite to conforming to the passions of your former ignorance. So we tend to measure holiness by comparing ourselves to others. Well, at least I don't live like that person does. At least I don't do the things they do. But here, we compare holiness to what we once were. It's not about focusing on being better than others. It's about me and it's about you being transformed. So I like the phrase, grace doesn't make me better than you. It makes me better than I would have been. So think about that. Where would, where would you be if God didn't intervene in your life? Where would you be without the grace of God? So you are to be set apart, not just from the world, but from what you once were. So if you are in Christ, you are a new creature, a new creation, set apart from your old life, set apart from your old self. So that's why it's an all-encompassing command. And it's why Peter says to be holy in all of your conduct. And this means that we can't uh, compartmentalize our lives as, as um, we all tend to do. That we can obey God in certain situations, there's certain instances in which we're living for Him. That's when we you know, serve in church or evangelize or read the Word or pray, do all these spiritual things. And then you have the, the nominal or secular things that we do. And that's something that's just to be a completely different part of our life. We have the holy part and just the regular day-to-day -day activities. Like time with family or our work, our study, our hobbies. But it's actually meant to be an entire life of holiness. Not just the things that we think of as, as spiritual. And that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the normal day-to-day -day activities of life and your work and things like that. But the call to holiness affects all of those things, not just the spiritual. And it's more than simply being transformed away from sin and ignorance. But it's actually about transformation toward an end goal. We're actually being made more like God. See, it says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's a quotation from several different places in Leviticus. The people of Israel were set apart from the other nations, not because they were powerful, not because they were righteous, not because they were great in number, but simply because God chose them. But again, it wasn't just to set them apart to make them not like the other nations. It was to make them more like God. 
And in the New Testament, the church is the continuation of this. A chosen people, elect from every nation, and we are called to be set apart, different from our culture, different lifestyle, different thinking, a different hope. But it's not just about becoming less like our surrounding culture. It's about becoming more like God. And in the case of the New Testament, we we actually see God revealed in a deeper way than what the Old Testament saints uh, got to see. We see God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We we actually get to to read the Gospels, see his character and his sinful life. We can see in his death and resurrection his sacrificial love for us. We can experience his, his transforming love through the Holy Spirit within us. So when we read Be Holy in this text, it's it's not just a call to self-betterment or self-improvement. The the Bible isn't a self-help book. It's a radical calling to become more like Jesus. It's a call to be one who speaks the truth and does the will of the Father. To be one who loves his neighbor. One who forgives his enemies, even when they persecute him. One who lays down his life for others. That's the calling that we have to be like Jesus. Now, there was a bit that I left out at the start of verse 14. What's the first few words of verse 14? As obedient children. And that's really key to understanding this text. As obedient children, be holy. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. See, our position changes everything. So remember at the start of the sermon, I said, what you believe about who you are changes your purpose and your meaning for everything in life. If you believe you're nothing more than a biological machine, in an atheistic universe, then your life will have no meaning. And if you believe the universe revolves around your happiness, then you'll try and create your own purpose to that end. I think we who believe in God can still fall into this very same trap of misunderstanding who we are in Christ. If you see yourself as someone who has to try and earn God's favour then your purpose will be one of striving hopelessly toward achieving moral perfection. Or perhaps you might see God as far and and distant, not really caring about how you live, which actually provides us with with very little purpose or incentive for holiness. But correctly recognising our position changes everything. We can tell from this passage and throughout the New Testament that we have been adopted as his children. So did, did, did you know that? Do, do you actually think of your relationship with God in these terms, that we are children adopted by a loving Father? We are, as believers, children of God. We have a, a loving Father who desires to change us and to make us more like Christ. We are called to live for God, to become more like Him. And this is not out of duty, not out of obligation, Not out of threat, but like children wanting to please their father. That's why we grow in holiness, to become more like him. 
So how, how different is that? How different is it to pursue holiness, to live differently than our surrounding <coughs> culture, to live differently than our old ways, to become more like Christ, knowing that we're already, we've already been accepted into his family? That was just like the, the Old Testament allusions that he's uh, pointing to there by quoting from Leviticus. He had called the people of Israel out to lead a holy life, not so that they would become set apart, but he already set them apart. He already saved them. He already made them his people. And then, in response, they were to live a life of holiness. And he's done the same thing for us. He's already set us apart. He's already adopted us into his family. Now he's saying, live in accordance with what I've already done for you, my children. It's really important that we understand that part of the passage, or or, or the, the whole passage will actually become an unbearable burden. The call to holiness is an impossible task in our own strength. It's an impossible target if we were trying to attain God's approval. But we've already got it. We, we already have acceptance through Jesus. He's saying, now go and be holy. And that uh, relates to our, our third uh, command. It says, conduct yourselves with fear. But uh, look down in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter continues that theme. Before he said that we were children of God, and now we are to call on him as father. But he also refers there to God as judge. And the command is to conduct ourselves with fear. So so how do we balance that? Is God a loving father? Or is he the sovereign, all-powerful judge of the universe that we should fear? The answer is just yes. God is our Father and He is an all-sovereign, powerful judge of the universe. We're to live in light of both of those realities, not neglecting either. So if you neglect one, if you you live thinking that God is is your daddy and He's not a judge, then there's, there's no fear, there's no reverence, there's no desperation to pursue holiness, knowing that we will one day stand before a holy judge. And, and, and the scriptures do, do teach this, uh, that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for the works that we have and haven't done. But if we go to the other extreme and we live thinking that God is a harsh judge who doesn't tenderly love his children, then you'll fear coming to him in prayer. He'll seem really distant. But, but remember, the writer of Hebrews said that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. So we need to recognize both. God is Father and He is Judge. And when we live and believe both, we can live in reverent fear. And to be clear, that doesn't mean fear of condemnation, but fear towards God, recognizing Him as our Holy Judge. We don't fear condemnation because we know this world isn't our home. We're not part of the world system. We're merely living as exiles here. We know that we've been set apart, given eternal hope. Uh, We've been adopted into his family. But we also don't fear condemnation because he showed his love toward us by ransoming us. us. 
Uh, so look down in verse 18. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Okay, so for the first part there in verse 18, that we were ransomed. Uh, there's a couple of different uh, meanings that, that Peter could be alluding to. Um, he, he likes using plenty of different metaphors in, in this passage. Uh, but the, the word was commonly used in, in the Greco-Roman world referring to uh, slaves that were actually purchased by pagan temples, that they would pay this ransom with gold or silver, and that you were once a slave, and then once you were ransomed, you were then to work in service of that pagan deity. Though they secured their freedom, they really went from one master to another. And the same is true that Jesus has done this for us. We have been ransomed. We've been redeemed from slavery to sin, but we're now His. We're not free, self-autonomous beings called to live for ourselves. We live for Him because He's the one that freed us. So everyone is going to be a slave to something. You are either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. They are your only two options. But look at what it cost. So these other uh, pagan deities, pagan temples that would redeem people, it was just with gold or silver. But we've been redeemed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is where the Old Testament allusions come in. Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt and then God provided a system of atonement in which the blood of a lamb would be shed for their sins. And, and Jesus is actually the fulfillment of that whole system. It, it all points towards him. Jesus shed his blood for you. That's the length that he had to go to for a holy judge to forgive your sins. That's what it cost. That was the only way in which a holy and just judge could ever forgive our sins, the sins that we've committed this week. If he's going to be a just judge, he can't ignore our sins. He can't say, I'll forgive you by ignoring justice. There has to be payment for sin. But God is also merciful and loving and wanting to adopt us into his family. And that's where the in, in the cross we see God's justice and God's mercy meeting. We see God the Father punishing our sins on Jesus on the cross by shedding his blood. Justice being paid and yet also demonstrating his mercy towards us by providing a way of salvation. Providing a way for us to be reconciled with God, ransomed and redeemed and adopted into his family. So it is a reason to celebrate and praise God for that. That's why we sing about it every week. That's why we're called Gospel Church. But it also should give us reason to pause and, and to fear God, that, that that's what it actually took to save me. It actually took the blood of Jesus to save me. That means it's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to get used to and, and become uh, apathetic towards it. It's, it's a reason to, uh, to fear, to give reverence to God. When we confess our sins to God, when we come to Him and we acknowledge that we come because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that's, that's not a trivial thing. 
And although it was uh, a great tragedy, a great injustice that, that Jewish leaders and Roman authorities uh, punished the innocent and spotless Christ, this wasn't actually out of God's hands. It, was, it wasn't a cosmic accident. This, this gospel that we believe in wasn't God's plan B in response to our sin. This was his plan all along. Uh, I see in, in verse 20, speaking of Jesus, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. In Acts uh, 2, in uh, uh, Peter, actually, preaching at Pentecost, he describes the crucifixion as a part of God's predetermined plan. Before the foundation of the world, it was always God's plan for Christ to come and die to ransom a people for himself, these elect, elect exiles out of every nation. None of this caught God off guard. The, the, the fall didn't catch God off guard and had to quickly come up with this gospel message. God isn't going to be the accidental loser of this story. And Peter goes on to describe what happens next in, in verse 21. So, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus was the spotless lamb who died for us, but now he lives. This is why we have hope. And, and this is why we can obey the three commands that have been given to us in this passage. We are called to hope in God for, for our future salvation, and we can be confident of this because of the resurrection. We're called to live a life of holiness. And we can do this because Christ lives in us today. And we're to be conformed to be more and more like him. And we're called to live in fear of God because we know that Christ has been raised and will one day judge the world for their sins and believers for their works. So if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, then do it today. The commands uh, in this message aren't for you if you haven't yet believed in Christ. You first believe in Jesus. Trust that he died for your sins Believe that he rose again from the dead. And then and only then can you begin the Christian life that has this great calling. But for those of us who have already believed, this isn't a message of condemnation, although it's some pretty heavy topics and it's, it's pretty hard. It's not a message of condemnation, but one of hope. That we are called to this all-encompassing life of obedience, not as enemies of God, not, not just as servants, but, but as, as his children trying to please their father. That's why we can have hope in God. That's why we can be holy. That's why we can fear him, but not despair or fear condemnation, because we're already his children, simply trying to be obedient to our heavenly father. Let's, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can call upon you as our Heavenly Father. We thank you for the, the, the great salvation that you've given to us. We thank you that you've ransomed us with your blood. We thank you that you've forgiven us, but you've given us so much more than what we deserve. You've, you've gone a step further and adopted us into your family. And so we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in us, giving us the strength to respond with obedience, that we would do all that we could to, to, to please our Heavenly Father. 
Help us to place our hope in you. Help us to be holy, to be set apart from our old lives, from our culture, from the world. Help us to have reverence and to fear you. Help us to see you as both our Heavenly Father and the judge of the world. Lord, we thank you that we were bought not with gold or silver, but with the blood of Christ. We thank you that you would go that far to save us, a people that did not deserve it. But we thank you and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.